This is my conversation with Edward Watts, who has received his PhD from Yale University in 2002. His research interests center on the intellectual and religious history of the Roman Empire and the early Byzantine Empire. His first book, City and School in Late Antique Athens and Alexandria, explains how the increasingly Christian upper class of the late antique world used a combination of economic and political pressures to neutralize pagan elements of the traditional educational system. His second book, Right in Alexandria, Historical Debate in Pagan and Christian Communities, uses Greek, Latin, Coptic, and Syriac sources to reconstruct an Alexandrian riot that erupted in 486 AD. His third book, The Final Pagan Generation, offers a generational history of the men born in the 1310s that traces the experiences of living through the 4th century's dramatic religious and political changes. His fourth book, Hypatia, The Life and Legend of an Ancient Philosopher, recounts the life of an important female philosopher whose work redefined philosophy and whose death resonated as a symbol of dramatic religious and social change in the early 5th century. He is also the author of Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. In addition to these five books, he has co-edited five other volumes. He has also authored more than 40 articles on topics ranging from the Old Academy in the 4th century BC to the relationship between orality and textuality in the early Byzantine period. He is currently preparing a monograph tracing the Romanization and de-Romanization of the Mediterranean world between 96 and 850 AD. The Rise and Fall of the Roman Nation and is co-authoring a volume introducing the historical classroom uses of Roman imperial coins. I want to start off with one thing. You've specifically picked the Roman Empire to like, you know, study and like get your research on, teach with that. Why specifically the Roman Empire? Yeah, uh, there are a couple things. I mean, there was initially a passion for Rome because of a trip that I took when I was in high school. Um, and the thing that struck me and continues to strike me about visiting Rome is there's this immediate access, this feeling that you can um, go and experience a gigantic city as it was, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago. And there was something extremely fascinating about that, you know, to be able to walk through a space and understand when something was built, what it was supposed to do, who used it, um, how it has been used for centuries. Uh, and so to me, that was um, it, just a sort of natural and unending um, way to explore and generate uh, and recover knowledge. But the other thing that's interesting to me about Rome is uh, Roman history, of course, lasts for a very long time. Um, the Roman state was set up in the 8th century BC, and the Roman state ended in 1453 AD with the conquest of Constantinople. So you have this state that began kind of in the Bronze Age uh, and ended with gunpowder and cannons. Um, and so you can see just about everything that you might want to see in a society across those 2200 years. Uh, but the other thing is all of the Roman stories are over, right? They've ended. And so when we're living through events in the modern context, we want to think about what this event is going to mean. You know, how does this story end? How does this, this process conclude? And in Rome, all of the processes concluded. And some of them were very quick, you know, um, a war that lasted six months or a revolt that lasted 19 days. Uh, some of them lasted centuries. 
but all of them ended. And so they give us a way to think about events, um, trends, developments in our world that may take longer than our lifetime to play out. But Rome gives us a framework to allow us to imagine how those things might conclude because every Roman story has ended. Uh, and so to me, there's this remarkable ability to feel like you can immerse yourself in a story, but also investigate and understand how it ended and why it ended. Um, and so Roman history to me is something that's, you know, it's both alive um, and also um, vibrant in a kind of concluded way. So you mentioned that, you know, that that's like a snapshot of like, you know, what has happened. Like there's so much that went through the rise, the fall. There were so many things like, you know, generations went by. What is so similar about the Roman Empire to what we are seeing now? Because history has a way of repeating itself. Yeah, there are, I think are a lot of ways that Rome can help us understand the world around us. Um, one of the biggest ones is that, you know, we're very attuned to thinking about things that develop slow, that develop quickly. Um, you know, this particular event might happen and we're very good at imagining what's going to happen in two weeks or maybe two months. We're not very good at imagining what's going to happen in two generations. Um, so what we can see with Rome is, for example, what happens when economic inequality uh, emerges because there has been a revolution in the financial system. Um, in Rome, this happened in the second century BC, and it took about a hundred years, but this caused people to lose faith in their representative government uh, and ultimately turn to people like Julius Caesar who could change the situation quickly and dramatically. Uh, and so in the United States and in the Western world and in the world in general, what we're seeing is there has been a pretty significant um, group of intellectual um, and technological revolutions in the last two generations that have not spread resources equitably around the world. Um, and we're seeing the world system and a lot of domestic systems in a lot of different countries all at once coming under this sort of strain, not because the revolutions just happened, but because people waited for the government and their systems to respond. And it's been, you know, a generation and they haven't, it hasn't gotten better. And so people are beginning to lose faith in those systems. And what Rome shows is that's exactly what you would expect. Um, if you have a strong system of government and people have a lot of faith in it, they trust that it will solve problems. Um, but sometimes it can't. And in Rome, everybody recognized that there were problems with wealth distribution. And they kind of gave the Republic a generation to fix those problems. When it didn't, they started turning to people who were willing to play outside of the rules because they wanted the problems fixed and they were losing faith that their system could fix them. And I think right now, as we look around the world, we see, you know, in systems as diverse, um, you know, as authoritarian regimes and democratic regimes, people are tired with, you know, the inability of their system to fix the problems they see around them. Um, and Rome shows that that's a very long process. You know, it takes a long time for people to get to the point where they're frustrated. Uh, it also takes, you know, a long time for that frustration to manifest in a kind of political change that addresses what people feel like they want to have addressed. Um, and so this is, I think, a way, this is one of the many ways that we can look at Roman history and say there are processes that might unfold across our lifetime and our children's lifetime. You know, we won't see the end of them. But they're still very important and they have very significant um, implications for how the world changes and develops.
Speaking of um, outside of the rules, uh, Tiberius was like a, a, a very strong uh, pivoting point for the way things changed. Can you talk about like how, what significant part he played in the whole change of the Roman Empire, the way it functioned after his, like, you know, coming in? Yeah, so Tiberius Gracchus is uh, the person who catalyzes this I suppose you would say revolt against the Republican system. Um, and Tiberius Gracchus is uh, a person who, for most of his early life, was brought up to be a leader in that system. Um, and at a sort of midpoint in his career, he just found himself on the wrong side of a political argument that he really had very little to do with. Uh, there was a, he was a commander or he's in charge of the accounts of a commander who was sent to a campaign in Spain, fight a war in Spain. Um, and in that war, the commander really, really did a bad job. Uh, the army was captured and they had to negotiate a surrender. And when the commander and Tiberius Gracchus came back to Rome, the uh, Senate in Rome decided that they were going to make an example of this commander. And Tiberius Gracchus was just sort of brought along with this. Uh, but what Tiberius Gracchus had done was he'd saved a lot of soldiers from imprisonment and possibly death. So there was a large group of people who were not elite and not wealthy and not powerful who very much liked Tiberius Gracchus. And so Tiberius realized that his political career as a person within that system was probably over. And so he began campaigning as somebody who was going to challenge the rules of that system. Um, and the policies that he pursued were not particularly aggressive or innovative, but the way that he pursued them was. Uh, and so he wasn't going to make a real difference in the way the state functioned or in the conditions of people living in that state, but he made people feel like finally somebody was fighting for them. Um, and so in that sense, it was the, the optics of what Tiberius Gracchus was doing rather than the substance of his policies that um, that made him a figure who generated a lot of enthusiasm, but also for people who were invested in that Republican system in the way that it had worked before, Tiberius Gracchus was a real threat because he was unleashing kind of anger that um, the system really didn't have space for. Uh, and so Tiberius Gracchus ended up assassinated largely because he was willing to challenge the functioning of that system, the basic rules of the Roman Republic, um, in a fashion that exploited constitutional ambiguities. Um, but he did it in a way that was threatening. And that was part of the point. Um, it wasn't so much that he was threatening people to get particular um, reforms put in place. He actually, I think, didn't have a very significant and well-developed program for reforms. He was challenging the system and threatening people um, and channeling anger because that's what he wanted to do, because it was good for him. And the people who were angry, um, they also were very happy to go along with this because someone was finally listening to them. And someone was finally expressing their concerns in a way that needed to be taken seriously. Would you kind of call him similar to Trump? I'm not saying that Trump is just like for sure the example, but he kind of incites that kind of rhetoric that kind of pushes people to feel like, you know, he's part of like he's fighting for us, not necessarily actually ch making changes, but like incites that kind of energy within his group. 
I think that that kind of energy is something that uh, a figure, you know, like a Trump, but um, I think there are many figures around the world that you can look at who, who also do this. Um, and it's, it's a very, very powerful tool at a moment where people feel like they're not being listened to. Uh, and again, I think we're in a moment around the world, I mean, in, in all kinds of contexts where people feel that way. You know, they feel like there is this unaccountable um, way the world works that isn't taking into account their needs or their desires or their hopes. Uh, and they're very, um, they want somebody to speak for them. And I think Trump was one of those people. Um, but I think that it's a very interesting moment we live in because there are a lot of those people. Um, and 50 years ago, there really weren't that many types of people doing those kinds of things. Uh, so it's a real change. Why, why does that happen though? There has to be something that is very uh, similar that like, you know, catalyzes figures like this coming out uh, throughout like, you know, our history. Yeah, I think they, um, I think the Roman example and the example of say, um, much of the world since about 19, 1980 or so, um, they're very similar because what happened, um, and, and here I can speak probably most um, clearly about the United States. But what happened in the United States is uh, starting in the 1980s, there was a really dramatic change in the way that banking and, and finance worked. Um, and the technological changes that went along with the rise of the internet just accelerated this to the point where there are people who can become very, very, very rich. I mean, the richest people ever to live are alive right now. Um, and they can become very, very, very rich in a way that doesn't make sense to regular people. Um, they don't understand why the wealth that these people have accumulated is just, but they do understand that on some level it's legal. And in Rome, you had this same tension starting in the second century BC between what was just and what was legal, um, because there was also a financial revolution in Rome that involved kind of the creation of a bond market where um, Romans could buy and sell loans and generate income just on the transactions of buying and selling loans. And for most Romans who live primarily in an agrarian economy, um, where wealth is land and wealth is something that you can touch, uh, to see these people who are fantastically wealthy, but don't have anything that you would recognize as wealth, um, that doesn't make sense to them. And it doesn't seem just. They would agree that it's probably legal. There wasn't any law in Rome against what these financiers were doing, uh, but it didn't feel just. And I think that we're in a moment now that's very similar, where um, the Elon Musks of the world have a tremendous amount of money. I mean, more money than anybody has ever had, more money than countries have. Mm -hmm. um, and yet at the same time, we acknowledge that that's legal, but we don't feel like it's just. And so there's a tension that is a very Roman tension where uh, when Romans talked about how their society worked, they said that our Republic is based on a kind of mutual understanding that all citizens have that the state will belong to them and will be governed according to a consensus about what's legal and what's just. And when you have a situation where what's legal and what's just doesn't match up, then there's a real crisis of confidence in this system. Um, and I think in the United States, but also in a lot of countries around the world, there's again that crisis of confidence where the system seem, the legal system seems to permit things that don't seem right. They don't seem ethical. They don't seem just. And this 
causes people to to be very um, uncomfortable that their government and their society has moved away from this basic idea that it should be governed according to what's both lawful and what's good for everybody. Let's journey back a bit. So Rome was not always a republic. It was a monarchy. So I know that there was a shift, but let's let's start from the beginning. Like where, how did this play out? And then when it turned to a monarchy and then an, an empire by itself, there was, there was a transition. And what was the transition like? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so early Rome is a city state. It's very small. Um, it's, you know, it's not even all of the hills that are now in the city of Rome. Um, and it's a city state that has a very unique way of approaching the makeup of its population. Uh, because unlike a lot of places in the ancient world, Rome had a concept of citizenship, but it also had a very expansive idea of who could be a citizen. So in a lot of the ancient world, if you weren't born of people who were citizens, like your parents, in some cases, both of your parents were not citizens, you were not going to be a citizen. And there was really very little way that you were going to get around that. In Rome, that wasn't the case at all. If you came to Rome and you had talents or you had resources or you had abilities that Rome thought was valuable, um, you would become not only a citizen, but you could actually become king. And so um, of the first Roman kings, the ones that are historical, um, one of them was born a slave, um, um, was half Greek, half Etruscan, so not Roman at all. Um, you know, and they were brought in because of their capacity to make the state better. And so the Roman monarchy was this, um, this system where the leading people in the city of Rome held auditions to try to figure out who's the best person who can do this job. Uh, and then the monarch was um, selected by the leading members of the leading families in Rome and then approved by the people. But the last, uh, the last Roman monarch took power in a coup. Uh, and so the leading people, leading families did not choose him. He actually was Roman. He wasn't from outside of Rome. Uh, and he was sort of approved by the people, but not really. And so he was seen really as an illegal monarch by a lot of the Roman population. Um, for a while, that didn't matter. But eventually he and his descendants started causing problems. Uh, and there's a story that his, one of his sons raped a woman. Uh, and this sparked a revolution among the leading families in Rome that deposed the monarchy and created this new system, which was the Republic. Um, and the Republic started as a system designed to remove the king and give power to the leading families in Rome. Um, and allow regular people to effectively just approve whichever members of the leading families, the leading families decided to put forward. But it evolved over time, so it became more of a representative democracy, where uh, any Roman was able to run for election. Um, if they won election, they would then govern in the name of the people, uh, and they also would propose policies that would be voted on by the people. And so for almost 500 years, this was the system of government in Rome. Um, the Republic fell apart starting in the second century BC because Rome got too big and too economically sophisticated for a system of government like that to function well. 
Um, so by the time the Republic fell, this thing that had started out as the government of a city-state now was the government of all of Italy with all Italians who are citizens potentially able to vote in Rome. Um, most of them couldn't make the trip, but if they had made the trip, they would have been able to vote in Rome. And then they controlled an area that was nearly the size of um, Australia. So a very, very big territory uh, and it couldn't be governed in the way that it that it was governed before. Um, governing that much land and that many resources and that many subject populations wasn't something a republic could do well. Uh, and so there were these tensions that emerged in the second century BC that ultimately resulted in civil wars. Uh, and after the, the worst and most extensive civil war, um, the Emperor Augustus took power as, as a, effectively a monarch. Uh, and then Rome remains an empire for the next almost 1,500 years. And then what uh, was the collapse from there? So the empire um, more or less retained its territory for almost 450 years. There were some expansions after Augustus, um, the most significant being the conquest of Britain and the conquest of what's now Romania. Uh, but for the most part, it retained its territorial integrity for almost 500 years. Um, what ended up happening was um, what started as an empire for Italians, where a lot of the people in the territory around the Mediterranean were governed by Italians, became something like a nation state where everybody in the Roman, in the Roman um, geographical territory was a Roman citizen and had the same expectations and rights as people in Italy. And so the government needed to be more responsive um, and it needed to have more of a presence in these far-flung places. So starting in the third century AD, uh, they, they began positioning kind of regional capitals um, and emperors in these different regional capitals. Um, and ultimately the empire divided in 395, not by any real concerted plan. It wasn't like when Czechoslovakia decided to split into the Czech Republic and Slovakia and they drew a line and said, we are now separate. What happened is they um, just had two emperors on two different sides, um, one in Italy, one in Constantinople, and the two emperors um, kind of diverged. And the, the fate of the two empires diverged, and the Eastern Empire remained intact and prosperous, and the Western Empire struggled to deal with barbarian invasions. Um, and unlike what would have happened in, say, the third century um, or the second century AD, in the fifth century, the East didn't send resources to the West to deal with the barbarian invasions. So the West was left on its own. It didn't do a good job of handling this. Um, and ultimately the Western empire kind of was folded into a state run by Goths. Um, and then pieces of it were reconquered in the sixth century by the East. So what could have you, like if you were there back in history and you were like, you know, this could save the Republic, what would you say would be the key move strategically for the, the, the leaders back then? So I think um, for saving the Republic in the first century BC, the biggest thing Romans needed to understand is that their Republic could collapse. They didn't understand that, you know, they didn't imagine it. Um, so when you read things written by people in say the fifties, we look at that and we say, well, Julius Caesar is going to launch a civil war in 49. Um, and that is going to end, effectively end the Republic. It's going to lead to almost 20 years of civil war. Um, and the Republic is going to end after that. You've read things from like 53 
and they still imagine the Republic is, you know, it's it's under strain, but it's it's going to be there forever, and they behave like it's going to be there forever. Um, there's a great book by a colleague of mine, Josiah Osgood, um, that talks about the the party conflict between Julius Caesar and Cato in the fifties, um, and both of them are working under this assumption that they are playing a kind of political game in an arena that is very well defined and the Republic will always be there. And they're playing kind of within this space that is the Republic. And it becomes, it's clear to us that the Republic is collapsing around them. You know, if they believe they're playing, you know, basketball in a stadium, we can see that the stadium is, you know, falling apart and the roof is falling in and, and they think they're playing a game in a very controlled environment that's not controlled at all and is, is ending. Um, but R Romans in the 50s didn't think that way. Uh, Cicero, for example, says that we could save it. You know, we just need to sort of bear down and, you know, and, and do the work um, and it will be fine. And then Cicero, who says part of that work is not condoning violence and not condoning kind of acts that undercut the constitutional structure. Then Cicero defends a guy who committed a political assassination. <laughs> because to him, those two things aren't contradictory. You know, one of them is just this thing that happens and the Republic exists around it. And I don't need to worry about the fact that my friend killed my enemy. And that's a political problem because I didn't like the guy who died and I like the guy who killed him. And so I'm just doing my job. And then if you step back, you realize, well, what Cicero is doing is advocating for the very sort of conduct that undermines what he believes has to keep the Republic together. So I think when you look at the Republic, the first thing that we have to acknowledge is Romans had this kind of arrogant blindness about what could happen. And they didn't imagine that the Republic, which had been there for 500 years, might not last for five years after, you know, after a certain point. Um, and I think that's actually a big lesson for us. Um, I think people across, you know, especially in Western Europe and the United States, have woken up to the fact that a lot of the rhetoric and behavior that is happening in our societies do undercut the potential continued existence of republics and free societies. Um, and I think people have woken up to the fact that these can potentially be problematic developments if we don't collectively take action to put our Republican system or a democratic system uh, ahead of our own individual self-interest um, and ahead of the small policy victory that we hope to win. Um, and so I think that's, a, that's something of a hopeful development because it's something that Romans were not capable of doing. Even in the moments where any objective observer who didn't share the arrogance that a republic could last forever would look and say, your republic is, it's on life support or it's comatose or it's you know, it's pretty much dead already. Hmm. Romans didn't see that until it was too late. But don't you see that history is repeating itself where people not realizing that the said Republic is, is, is in shambles and the system that is in place is not protected in such a way. It, it doesn't, it keeps happening again and again. You are a student of history, you understand it, but not everybody does. The man on the streets couldn't care less. I think... Um... I think people are waking up to it in a way that they were not aware um, they needed to wake up to five years ago um, or, or 10 years ago. 
Um, I think the process in a lot of these these states in Western Europe and North America um, has it's been going on for at least a generation. Um, if you look at France and you look at sort of the rise of Le Pen in the 80s and the 90s, um, people looked at him like he was kind of a curiosity. Nobody thought that he was anyone to be taken seriously. Um, I don't think anybody in France now looks at Marine Le Pen and says, this is a joke. Um, I think that they are very aware that she is someone you need to take seriously. In the United States in 2015, people thought Trump was a, a joke. Um, and like a, a, an interesting thing, but not a serious thing. Um, I don't think anybody in the United States thinks that now. You know, I think people take very seriously the fact that he is um, a person with quite a bit of ability to generate enthusiasm from a certain segment of the population. Um, and so I think people are waking up to it. The question in, uh, in a modern context is, are we sufficiently aware of these changes that we can avoid doing what the Romans did? which is to just assume that um, these problems we see will just kind of go away. You know, it will be like a passing storm and we can just keep doing our own little things and pursuing our own individual agendas without thinking about the bigger health of our society and our political system. Um, Romans very much felt that they could do that. Uh, I feel like people in the West are starting to become aware that you can't do this. Um, if you decide to pursue little small personal agendas and you leave aside the work that's necessary to preserve a republic, you will not have a republic. And I think people are beginning to realize this. The question is, um, you know, Cicero realized that in the 50s. He said it, he didn't live it. Um, are we going to be able to live it and say it? Uh, and I think that's where Rome provides a potential lesson, um, both about what we could do to save a free society and what, you know, we might not do um, and lose our free society. Let's talk about the positives. Like, so what of the Roman history, how can we take away from like leaders? Let's talk about uh, Caesar by itself, where they made massive changes and then just like, there was peace, there was some sort of stability in their empire when they were taking over. Let's take a few examples of that. What would you like, what would highlight and make sense for you? So there's a, a couple of examples that really stand out um, for me. So one of them is, uh, I think in a way, um, Caesar was an incredible idealist because he very much believed that the Republic could be put together without killing lots of people who opposed him. Um, and Caesar died because of this. So when Caesar won his civil war, um, very famously, he didn't execute his opponents unless his opponents were totally unrepentant. You know, if, if they were not, if keeping them alive meant they would keep fighting Caesar, Caesar would kill them. But if he could pardon them and bring them back into the Roman system of government and make them part of the society again. That's what he wanted to do because he believed that a Republic should actually value the lives of all of its citizens. Um, and it shouldn't kill any of them um, unless there's absolutely no other choice. Uh, and we know Caesar said this because Caesar said it starting in the sixties BC when he was just a regular politician. Um, so in the 40s BC, he's pardoning all of his adversaries that he captures in war. This is a principle to him. It's not pragmatic. It's because he believes 
as a sort of print matter of principle that the lives of every citizen needs to be need to be protected. Um, of course, then Brutus and Cassius kill him. People who pardon he pardoned, who he brought back into the system, uh, they create a plot and they, they assassinate him. Um, and so I think what Caesar shows is the necessity of bringing a society back together, you know, and that sometimes means taking a risk. Um, there's another emperor that gets very little credit. It's a man named Otho. Um, he ruled for a very short time in the year 69. Uh, but what Otho did um, is he was, he was a usurper. He did kill a reigning emperor. Um, but then another person rebelled at the same time. And in the context of fighting a civil war with this, with Vitellius, the other contender, Otho realized that he probably wasn't going to win. His troops were still willing to fight for him, but he didn't want to inflict more casualties on Rome. And so he actually killed himself, even though he had a viable opportunity to win a civil war, he killed himself just to spare Romans the additional um, carnage. Um, so there you see people who are willing to look for the larger good of society, even if it means that their own personal interests are undercut. You know, for Caesar, there was a very significant risk that went along with pardoning people that, you know, might not actually genuinely be repentant or might not genuinely want to continue on playing in a system that now Caesar dominates. Um, in Otho's case, he very, very clearly understood uh, his life would end. But if his life ended, maybe tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people would um, avoid dying or being named in, you know, in battles fought on his behalf. Um, I think another group of, of Romans that deserves particular credit um, is a, a group of people who embodied this ideal that um, the Roman society is supposed to be expansive and inclusive. Uh, and so there are, you know, a number of people across Roman history where you look at them and you say, these are people who understood that the society reached a, has reached a point where people who are subject to Roman control and not citizens need to be made citizens or the society is no longer just. Uh, and so there's a, a whole host of them from the Republic um, all the way up through some of the Roman emperors. Um, so in these cases, um, for example, like the Emperor Claudius in 48 AD says to the Roman Senate, as a matter of principle, we need to let people from what's now France into the Senate because these people are worthy of it. They are as um, sophisticated and intelligent and patriotic as anyone in Italy. And when the Senate objects, what the Emperor Claudius says is, look, we've always done this. This is how our kings were chosen. This is how our society has always worked. And when our society doesn't do this, it stagnates. This is a way to keep our society fresh and growing and dynamic. Um, and so I think you can see these moments where there are Romans with a very clear sense of what the greater good is. Sometimes that greater good also benefits them individually. Claudius wanted to expand the Senate because he wasn't getting along very well with Italian senators. So there's self-interest there but it's also principle that's that's introduced in service of that self-interest. Uh, but in the case of Caesar and in the case of Otho and in the case of some of these other figures, um, there's actually more kind of interest in the common good at the expense of themselves. Uh, 
And so I think Roman history provides us with some really good examples of the kinds of things that dynamic societies do and the kinds of things that courageous leaders have to do. Um, sometimes instead of taking vengeance, you need to do like Caesar and you need to take the risk that people you're going to rehabilitate will participate in your society productively and follow the rules that have now been set. It didn't work out for Caesar, but it did work out in a lot of other cases later in Roman history where emperors pardoned the people who at one point had fought against them. So, but if you go back, you see you're speaking about uh, Caesar, it turned badly for him. So why would someone who is in a position where they are in control sacrifice themselves for the greater good? Because no one's in a leadership position to be sacrificed. Um, I think that I think that's where Roman history becomes very interesting. Um, there are people who are willing to do that. I mean, there are a lot of people who aren't willing to do that. Um, but there are a lot of moments where, um, say, in the Roman imperial period, there'll be a civil war. And after a civil war, an emperor is completely entitled. You know, if he wins, he's completely entitled to do what he wants to the people who are on the other side. In a lot of cases, what emperors choose to do is rehabilitate those people. Um, so just yesterday I was writing about uh, an emperor named Diocletian who wins a civil war in 285 AD. Um, and Diocletian actually takes most of the people who had served with and under the person that he defeated and keeps them in government. Um, in 275, the emperor, 274, the emperor Aurelian conquers um, separatist Roman regimes in Gaul, which is now France, and in Syria. And instead of killing the leaders of those regimes, he brings them in, he makes the leaders of Gaul governors of provinces, and the queen of Palmyra in Syria, a woman named Zenobia, he brings her into Rome and he allows her to marry a senator. And her descendants then, you know, just live in Rome. Um, he could have killed them. He had every right to do that. What he decides instead is that for the empire to come back together again, I need to take the risk that these people might do something to me and I need to put them into positions of authority because that's the only way that you can really solidify a common sense that we are now all on the same team. We are now all working together for the better of Rome. And um, it worked out for Aurelian and it worked out for Diocletian, but it didn't always work out. You know, it didn't work out for Caesar. But, um, but I think that's a risk that Caesar felt very strongly he needed to take. Um, and it's a risk that other Romans later in time also feel like they need to take. Um, you can keep these people in positions of authority and they might turn their backs on you. You know, they might plot against you or do something to you. Um, but somebody who never opposed you at all also might plot against you and do something to you. Uh, and so I think there is a real sense for a lot of Roman leaders that it's important to bring your society together, even if you can't necessarily trust 100% that the outcome is going to be personally beneficial to you. Uh, and I think Romans would say that's actually what leadership is about. You know, you, your society, you are entrusted by the Roman citizens to run this state for their benefit. It doesn't belong to you. And so you have to do what's best for that state and for the citizens. And if that means it's not best for you, well, that's the job. Uh, although Octavius took a completely different approach, 
he made sure that like all of his uh, you know people who were against him were completely taken care of like his approach was not based on principle and his empire lasted for a very long time how would you justify that first let's explain to people who don't know how his he started off from the age of 19 and then things completely changed and he was so powerful that he managed to like you know keep control for a very long time yeah octavian is a really tricky figure <clears throat> because he's the nephew of julius caesar and so when julius caesar dies um octavian is 19 years old and he's named caesar's heir uh and he's a very very smart um and very very uh i suppose you would say ruthless character especially early in his career so um so he is absolutely committed to this idea of winning uh and winning in a fashion that incorporates the lessons that Caesar didn't learn you know the lessons of not trusting your adversaries and so um Caesar dies in April or I'm sorry March of 44 Octavian shows up in Rome in April of 44 um the civil war finally ends in 30 BC So he starts out fighting as a 19-year-old. He fights until he's 33. Uh and when the civil war ends, you know, he defeats Antony and Cleopatra. Um Antony is the right-hand man of Caesar who is struggling with Octavian to try to claim the mantle of Caesar's successor. Um and Cleopatra is the queen of Egypt. When Octavian defeats Antony and Cleopatra, conquers Egypt, um assumes full individual control over the Roman state. there is a pretty significant change in how he behaves so during the civil war he was incredibly ruthless um not only did he uh along with antony and another politician um sign off on the execution of thousands of people but he also even confiscated all of the land belonging to 19 cities in italy and distributed it among his his soldiers so that they would stay loyal to him um When he was doing these things he published lists of people these were called prescription lists and if your name was on that list you were supposed to be executed. Uh what we see is when the civil war is winding down a, a good number of people had managed to escape you know they'd been on this list and um in like in one very famous case uh, a husband was on this list and his wife because no women were on these lists women were not subject to prosecution or or um execution. Um his wife still retained her property and still retained her legal rights so she hid him for years and supported him for years and then finally as the war is winding down she appeals to octavian and says can you please like he's still alive can you please pardon him and octavian says sure and he pardons him um and so he is brought back into society and he's you know brought back in and is you know again returns to his his property and his livelihood and um that is a foreshadowing of how Octavian wants to rule as emperor. So, yeah, there's massive bloodletting during the civil wars. But once he realizes that those kinds of activities are counterproductive, it basically stops. Uh and what he then tries to do is to build a structure where it, it looks like the state again belongs to the Roman people. So his powers are voted on. He holds regular elections. There are magistrates who take take office just like they did in the Republic. and he structures his power so that it is actually defined constitutionally in terms that someone familiar with the republic would recognize um so what he is what he has done uh in the first phase of his career is is he has behaved like a butcher and murderous dictator he has done all kinds of things that 
are not consistent with how the Roman state has worked and how it treats its citizens. And he does this for a very long time. I mean, it's you know more than a decade that he's doing things like this. Um, but after the Civil War's end, he reigns for another 44 years. You know, he dies in 14 AD. Um, the Civil War's ended in 30 BC. And during that time, he tries very hard to construct a system that, again, returns these ideals of justice and law to something um, that represents the voices of the people. And he superintends it. And it's very clear nothing is going to happen that he doesn't approve of. But most of the operations of Rome, for most of the time, he doesn't have any direct involvement in. He will intervene if there's a problem, but for the most part, he entrusts it again to like magistrates who are elected and to members of the Senate and to, um, you know, to, to people who do functionally much the same kind of thing they did under the Republic. And so he says he restored the Republic to the Roman people. Um, for some Romans, they might even believe that's true. But really, like what he's trying to do is rebuild a society that can function without him directly intervening in every, every single step. Um, and that's really what the imperial system becomes. This thing where there is somebody who is in charge, who controls the armies, um, controls a lot of money to make up for budget shortfalls or deal with natural disasters, um, but generally doesn't want to be intimately involved in everything the state is doing, um, both because as a matter of principle, the state still belongs to Romans and, he, and this person is just in charge of running it, but also, practically, he doesn't want to be blamed for something that goes wrong, that's small and he had no involvement in. So what emperors tend to want to do is say, OK, you know, the public grain supply that's that's subsidized. So everybody has everybody in Rome um, has low cost food. They don't want to be responsible if there's a storm that delays the ship. Like they don't want people to riot and take that, take the emperor down because there's no grain. So they make a person um, the prefect of the grain supply. And if the ship doesn't show up and there's no food, the people get angry at that person. And then the emperor can step in and fix the problem and look like a hero. Um, you know, if, if the roads are not maintained, well, the emperor doesn't want to be the person you blame if there's a pothole. So you give that job to somebody. And then if they don't do their job well, you fire them and you fix it and you're a hero. And this is how the imperial system ultimately develops. This is what Augustus understood. Um, when he's Octavian and he's trying to win the civil war, he realizes there's no space for mercy and for incorporating other people and, and giving regular people and then senators decision-making authority. But once the civil war is over, he realizes the society can't function unless he does things like that. Um, and unless he, he, again, empowers people to work within a political system where they can make decisions. Um, as long as those decisions don't directly threaten his power, he's okay with that. So ruling in such a manner is more strategic than just like, you know, going by your ego where it's like, oh, I'm the emperor. So like, this is how it shall be. And then your personality bleeds into the way you like, you know, run your populace. Exactly. Um, it's, it's hard for some emperors how to maintain that distance. You know, they want to get involved in dumb little things. Um, but the problem when you get involved in dumb little things and you're running things as complicated as the Roman Empire, you can't do either of those jobs particularly well. You know, you, you can't manage the streets and run the empire. Um, 
because you will end up not spending enough time on either one of those things and the streets won't work like they're supposed to and the empire won't work like it's supposed to and then people will say you are not the right person for this job um and the problem that rome has is when the society says you're not the right person for this job there's really no option but to kill you um that's the one great problem with this imperial system is uh, there is a principle for the entirety of Roman history that the state belongs to its citizens. It doesn't belong to an emperor. This isn't like medieval France or something where um, the state belongs to the king. Uh, the state belongs to the people. And the emperor is trusted to administer that. But if he's not doing a good job, he has no right to be there. Um, but the problem is there's no way to you know, end his term without killing him. Uh, and so that is a fundamental challenge that you have in the Roman imperial system is um, there's a tension between this idea that an emperor works for the people and the fact that an emperor can't really be gotten rid of by the people without mm -hmm. killing him. So the almost at the end of the Roman Empire was the end of paganism. And there was this this whole shift to Christianity. How did that come about? Because there was a generation that was experiencing pagan culture, and then slowly incorporating Christianity. And then there was the end, like, let's say, not completely of paganism, it was kind of like against the pagan rituals, pagan lifestyle and belief systems. How did that come? So the um, so Christianity obviously grows out of the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was born during the reign of Augustus, and he died during the reign of Augustus' successor, Tiberius. So this is really very early in the Roman Empire. Um, and the movement as you, so Jesus dies probably around like 33 AD. Um, by the 60s, the, uh, there's been a decision that, you know, Christianity will be a movement that can incorporate anybody who wants to be a Christian. They don't have to be Jewish. Uh, this was a big argument because Jesus's ministry was mainly to Jews. Once there's an understanding that Christianity can be something that's accessible to everybody, uh, Christian missionaries and Christian communities start evangelizing and bringing people into Christianity. Um, it grows at a pretty steady pace, but the community is not very large for most of, say, the first century into the second century. Um, but, you know, it's growing probably, I think sociologists estimate it was probably growing at a pace of like 10%, you know, every decade or so. Like it was it, growing dramatically, but it didn't show up as dramatic change demographically because the community started so small. But by the time you get to about the year 300, um, the Christian population is probably 10% of the Roman population. Uh, and at this moment, um, the Emperor Diocletian, who we talked about earlier, uh, initiates a persecution of these Christians that targets the leadership of the church. Uh, what he's hoping to do is to sort of snuff out Christianity by getting rid of the leaders. What he ends up doing is kind of radicalizing um, some of these leaders, but also creating like a new generation of leaders that are resistant to the persecution that rise up to replace the people that he killed. And it's in the immediate aftermath of that, that the emperor Constantine converts to Christianity. Um, so Constantine converts because he's in the middle of a battle. He has a vision. Um, it's a vision supposedly sent to him by the Christian God. He wins the battle against really uh, ridiculous odds and 
he then uh, embraces Christianity and starts a policy of promoting Christianity in the Roman Empire. He does not persecute pagans. Instead, what he tries to do is incentivize people to become Christians. Um, and over the course of the fourth century, this process of incentivizing Christians <clears throat> allows Christianity to continue this pretty dramatic growth until uh, by, say, about 355 or 360, um, some major cities, like the city of Alexandria with 500,000 people, have become majority Christian. Um, and by probably 400, the empire overall has become majority Christian. Um, it's a really fast change. Uh, Christianity's rate of growth probably remains steady from the time of Jesus to like 400. But the implications of that rate of growth become really dramatic across the fourth century. Um, and it takes a lot of people by surprise. Because if you were born in 310, you were born into a society that was 90% pagan. Um, by the time you die, that society is majority Christian. That's a really dramatic change because um, Christianity is a group of, it's a religion populated by a group of people who understand that this is also their identity. Uh, and so they are very closely affiliated both with the religious practice and the notion that they are Christianos, you know, they are Christians. If you are not a Christian, religion is not an identity. It's just something you do. So for Christians, religion is what you do. You know, you go to church on Sunday, you pray, you listen to a sermon, you take communion, but it's also something that you are. If you are someone who's devoted to traditional Roman religion, you're, you just do that. You aren't something. There isn't even a word for this. Yeah. Christians make up the word pagan. You know, it's their word. The people that they call pagans actually are a category that sees very little in common with other people that Christians call pagans. Mm -hmm. So um, people in the fourth century who are pagans in the city of Emesa, which is now the modern city of Homs in, in Syria, they worship a god that is a large asteroid, like it's a rock. Um, pagans in Athens worship Athena, and the temple where they go to see Athena is a giant that has this giant statue of her in ivory and gold, where she looks like a person. The things that these people do, the, the thing, the gods they worship, the way they represent these gods, they have nothing in common. Um, and yet, to a Christian, these are all pagans. But to these people, they look at the person in Syria and they just say, I don't, you know, if you're in Athens, you don't understand what that person is doing. You don't really share anything in common with that person, except for the fact that you're not Christian. But that doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, because your religion is not about it isn't defining who you are, it's just what you do. Um, and so by the time you get to 400, uh, Christians have a religious practice that's tied to an identity and they have a very clear sense of how to convince other people to adopt that, those religious practices and eventually the identity. And on the other side, there aren't pagan missionaries. There aren't people trying to get you to accept that, you know, you belong to a culture and a cult and a religion that is paganism. Um, what you have instead is a set of arguments saying, well, 
why is it that we have to only do things one way? Like, why do we only have to worship Jesus? Because pagans believe you can worship however you worship, you know, you can worship multiple gods. Um, if you want to worship Athena and you want to worship the rock in Emesa, that's your prerogative. People in Emesa might not understand why you do it. People in Athens might not understand why you do it, but it doesn't matter because it's your choice. And so when pagans are pushing back against the rise of Christianity, what they're arguing for is choice. Um, and what Christians are saying is, you know, they're in a sense playing chess while pagans are playing checkers. Hmm. Um, they have a much more sophisticated understanding of what they want to achieve and how to achieve it. And pagans are effectively arguing to say, why can't we just do things like we always did them? Um, and so it's, it's not surprising that pagans lose this argument, but it's surprising to them. Because again, like Romans living in the late Republic, they couldn't imagine that this would happen. They couldn't imagine a society, if you know, you're know you in 50 BC, you couldn't imagine a Roman society that's not a Republic. In 350 AD, you couldn't imagine a society where you don't have kind of the freedom to go and worship whatever gods you wanna worship in whatever way you wanna worship them. Um, but in both cases, that, that failure of imagination led to um, the creation of a world that was absolutely unfathomable to the people who lived through that transformation. Speaking of rapid changes uh, and, in a way, unionization, like like Christianity by itself, like, you know, they came together with an organized fashion and yeah. made changes to a group of people who had not, like, you know, written, in, written down what their structure was. They were a little more, like, you know, fluent about how they were practicing whatever they were practicing so do you see that similarity with now where there are groups of people who like okay let's say uh kkk i don't want to give that example but you know what i mean like you know they have their own set of agendas and they push that constantly and then when you do not know where you stand it becomes very difficult for you to like you know build your boundaries um I think that this situation between Christians and pagans is so unique because what Christians are doing um, shapes the way that we now in a modern context think about religion, right? I mean, we think about religion as you are X. It's part of who you are. It, it defines your identity. Um, that was so weird to people in antiquity. It wasn't how they thought at all. Um, so we would say, you know, like if, if you're raised a Catholic, but you decide that you're going to start going to a mosque, you have converted to Islam. Hmm. Um, if you are raised in Athens to worship Athena, but you move to to Emesa and you start worshiping Elagabal, that's not weird to them. I mean, it's kind of weird, but it's not out. You haven't changed who you are. You yeah. haven't converted. There's no such thing as conversion, uh, as converting. If you you just adopted another god, um, mm -hmm. there's a great text written by a um, he's a like a teacher in the city of Smyrna in the like second century, and he talks about um, in the one sixties his daily. He has a journal with like his daily prayers, and he says in one day uh, that he heard that the emperor is campaigning in Syria. Uh, a military campaign. And so he writes about his prayers that day. And he says, I, you know, I prayed to Athena um, and I prayed to Asclepius, the gods I usually pray to. Um, because I'd heard news of the war, I prayed to, um, you know, to the god 
uh, Ares, the war god, um, and Jupiter because the emperor is fighting, or Jupiter, um, Zeus because the emperor is fighting and that is the king of the gods. And he says, and I pray to the gods who hold Syria. So he has the gods he usually prays to. He has these other gods he doesn't pray to, but he at least knows the name of. And then the gods in Syria, he's never even heard of them. He doesn't know what gods hold Syria. He has never prayed to them. But it's totally fine to just pray to them in this kind of abstract way. Because in paganism, like, you just admit there's lots of gods and there's lots of ways to interact with them. And you may have interacted with them every day. You may have interacted with them very rarely. You may not even know about them. But it's not like he converted from a worshiper of Athena to a worshiper of Zeus to a worshiper of gods in Syria whose name he doesn't know. It's all just sort of one big practice. And what Christians do is they create a space where who you worship equals who you are. And that's a very, that's how we think of religion in a modern context. Um, but it's not, it's totally foreign to the way that people who are not Christian in antiquity would think about religion. Um, and so I think what you see in the fourth century is two radically different ways of understanding the world coming into conflict with each other, one side understanding directly what they want to achieve from this conflict. Um, and for Christians, this means getting people to convert to Christianity and stop identifying and practicing paganism. And another side that just doesn't even understand the ground rules of the conversation. You know, for pagans, you could worship Jesus. That's totally fine. You could worship Jesus. Um, and there are pagans who do worship Jesus, hmm. uh, but they do it alongside Athena and, you know, and Zeus and all of these other gods. Jesus is just another god to them. And that's totally fine in paganism. The problem pagans have is when Christians say you can only worship Jesus. What else was the environment like then? So was there like, you know, racism? Was that something? Because I know that there was slavery. And despite how elevated their society was and how educated they were, there was still this element of like slavery. How does one grapple with that and still understand that, you know, the, this, that they were a product of their time? Yeah, I mean, slavery is, is different in the Roman world because it's not race-based. Um, there are slaves of all kinds of different ethnicities. Um, and so I think the way to think about the Roman world is um, it is a very hierarchical place where it is possible to move up the hierarchy. Like there are people who are born slaves who in the royal period become kings. Um, in the imperial period, you know, they are freed and they become like the top advisors to emperors. They become very wealthy and influential. Um, most slaves didn't have that happen, obviously. But, um, but it is a society where it's possible to move up and down the hierarchy and the hierarchy is not race-based. Um, but there is definitely massive amounts of kind of ethnic stereotyping. So you will have, especially in the third century where everybody becomes a Roman citizen and, and people feel like this has kind of destabilized the rules of who fits where in the hierarchy. Um, you, you do see people talk about things like, well, you know, Syrians behave this way and people from, Gaul behave this way and people from North Africa behave this way and Greeks behave this way and people from the Balkans behave this way. Um, so there's a lot of this kind of ethnic stereotyping that happens. But for Romans, um, there's a very clear sense of 
how the hierarchy of different places in society should fit together. Uh, and if you are, say, um, like the Empress of Timia Severus, a senator who also is a military commander, who is also a dark-skinned North African, who becomes emperor, well, okay, right? Like that's, that happens, things like that happen. Um, but you're not seen as jumping, you're jumping the line or taking something that is not um, consistent with your status. Uh, so Timia Severus is emperor from 193 to, to around 211. Um, when Septimius Severus dies, there's, you know, his sons take over. The, um, one of his sons is killed in 217 two and is replaced by a guy who's a Moor. Um, so dark-skinned North African as well. So Timius Severus there is not this sort of challenge saying, well, he, you know, jumped the line. But this other guy is not a senator when he takes power. And so there is a really serious reaction against him. But the reaction is not racial. It's not, well, someone who's dark-skinned shouldn't be emperor. Yeah. It's actually someone who's not a senator shouldn't be emperor. Uh, and so there's a very clear sense of hierarchy in the Roman world. They're very protective of hierarchy. There's a very clear sense of racial, not racial, ethnic stereotyping. Um, like if you're from a certain region, like you have these characteristics. Um, but there's also a sense that like if you've earned your place you've earned your place and like that's you know then that's fine but if you haven't earned your place well we're not comfortable with that and it doesn't matter if you're an italian um or if you're a moor uh if you haven't earned your place we're not there's going to be problem there's going to be a problem with um accepting this uh i mean a great example another great example of this is after Macrinus, there are two emperors from Syria. And one of them is the Emperor Elagabalus does all kinds of things that are seen as um, not Roman in the way that he's behaving. His cousin is equally Syrian. He's from the same city. You know, He's just as Syrian as, as Elagabalus. Um, when he replaces Elagabalus, everybody is just totally fine with it, you know, because he behaves in a way that they understand to be consistent with the, the way that the state should fit together and consistent with like where he fits in the hierarchy. So, um, so I think when we, when we imagine Rome, um, we have to understand this is a society that is incredibly unequal. It's a society that privileges the rights of its citizens, but accords very little rights to its slaves. Um, there are significant numbers of slaves in this society. It's also an incredibly diverse society full of ethnic stereotyping, um, but it's also inclusive. Uh, where uh, where somebody who has risen through a society and has a particular status is allowed to have that status and that status is recognized, accepted, and respected regardless of where they come from or what they look like. Um, but they still will have, you know, a sense of, well, okay, yes, you're emperor and you're from Syria, but you have this kind of character because you're from mm. Syria. What about women? What was women's place in the Roman Empire? So... Um, what is interesting about um, the role that women have is politically, it's understood that women cannot hold office. They shouldn't aspire to office. Um, that has advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the disadvantage, of course, is you can't hold office. Hmm. The advantage is, um, like when we were talking about Octavian, um, that means you're also not fair game for political retribution 
your property is not going to get confiscated. I mean, sometimes if you really are, you know, you fall really afoul of an emperor because your husband did something, the property might get confiscated. But most of the time, what women are able to do is operate politically um, in a fashion that cannot be suppressed in the way that a man operating politically can. Um, they can never take power like a man does in an explicit way. Uh, never is not right. I mean, there are women who do this, but quite late, you know, like in the year 800, um, there's an empress who rules in her own name. In 275, there seems to be an empress who runs things for a little bit. Um, there are others in the 11th century, for example. But most of the time, um, women do not rule or run things in their own name. Um, but they also have this ability to to advocate political positions that looks like they are doing this completely on principle because they can't benefit electorally. They can't benefit by rising to a higher office uh, because they can't hold office. So when women come forward and say this policy is terrible, it's believed that they're doing this on principle. Like they do it because they think the policy is terrible, not because they're going to you know, benefit politically down the road, but because it's terrible. Uh, so there's a great example of this when Octavian is doing his, per, his, pres, his prescriptions. Um, and he confiscates all of his property. He kills all of these men. He takes their land. Um, he still doesn't have enough. And he realizes that a lot of resources are held by women and they're not taxed. He can't kill them. He can't confiscate the property because there's no political grounds to do anything against a woman. Uh, so he, he tries to institute a tax against these wealthy women. And a woman named Hortensia comes before the Senate. And Hortensia is the daughter of a, a very famous rhetorician. So she's very eloquent. She's a very good writer. She's a very good speaker. And she comes before the Senate and she attacks this policy. And Octavian can't do anything about it. And he has to rescind the policy. Um, and then Hortensia publishes the speech. And she becomes kind of a literary sensation. Um, and in that speech, she says exactly this. She says, I am coming before you to speak on principle because I am not a senator. You know, I can't hold office. I can't join you. But this policy is so bad that I have to come and inform you about why it's such a bad policy. And Octavian acknowledges I can't do anything to her. So I think when we look at the role of women, we have to we have to look at it in a very nuanced way. Um, is it just that they are excluded? Absolutely not. Um, does their exclusion mean they have no ability to influence things politically? Also, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, and women in Rome are extremely smart and sophisticated, and they understand these rules, and they understand how to exploit these rules to their benefit. Um, and so there are women like Hortensia who take advantage of the, the sort of rules that govern their political participation in society and use it for their own financial or political advantages. Um, and, and sometimes if they do a very good job of this, the men can't do anything about it. They have no recourse. The women just box them in and they get what they want. And so I think we have to have a very, um, very nuanced view of these women, but we also have to acknowledge their agency. You know, these are smart, capable, um, very sophisticated and very savvy political actors who can work politically in a society where they're not supposed to be working politically um, because they are so smart and they understand the rules. So how does Cleopatra play in this whole picture? Yeah, so Cleopatra is a queen in Egypt. 
Um, and so what Cleopatra is doing is, is really trying to use the Roman general Antony, um, and before that Julius Caesar, to benefit her own position in Egypt and to benefit Egypt in a larger Mediterranean world where Rome is far more powerful than Egypt. And Egypt is really the only significant independent state left in the Mediterranean. Um, and so what Cleopatra is trying to do is, is play a kind of international political game by inserting herself into Roman domestic politics and a Roman civil war. Um, and she has to do it through Roman men because she's not Roman. Uh, you know, and she has no position in Rome. Um, and she does, she is very sophisticated and savvy in how she does this. Um, but she's really playing a pretty weak hand. You know, it, it would be, I don't know what a modern parallel would be. Um, maybe the equivalent of like North Korea trying to play China. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's not like they're equals. Um, and so what she's trying to do is what she thinks is best for herself and what's best for her kingdom um, in a situation where she doesn't have a lot of freedom to do things on her own. She really does have to work through Roman men. And um, and she understands also that, you know, the Roman Republic is collapsing. There's no there's no security in the way it's going to interact with Egypt. And so she really does have extremely difficult task. Um, and she has to do the best she can with a pretty weak position. So you kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, when there's a system in place and when that is shaken or like, you know, people don't follow the status quo, that's when like, you know, things change, where when things collapse and republics like, you know, fragment and break apart. But then there's also this added thing where, you know, revolutions happen when you break the status quo and that's when you, you progress as a society. So how does one differentiate between the two? When are you going to like disintegrate what is set up and what could help grow in the long term for short instead of short term goals over what needs to be done? So I think that um, if you compare the civil wars at the end of the Republic to some of the civil wars you get in the empire, you can see the difference between a system falling apart and conflict within that system. Um, so in the civil wars at the end of the Republic, those are in a way about what the rules of the political game are going to be. Um, the generals who are fighting those civil wars, starting with Caesar, fight those civil wars, well, actually starting even with Sulla in the first century BC, like in the 80s BC, they fight those civil wars because they, they believe very fundamentally that the Republic can no longer protect them. You know, that uh, if they continue to live in this society uh, with the way that society is functioning, they will probably end up exiled or dead. And so they don't trust that the system can, can support them and they blow it up. Um, and do things like march on the capital and destroy the political structures that were governing the capital because they don't believe that they can survive if they don't do something like that. The civil wars in the empire are fought by people who generally agree that the imperial system as it's designed will continue. It's just who's going to be in charge of it. Mm -hmm. So where the civil wars in the Republic are about effectively replacing the Republic with one person being in charge. In the empire, it's already clear one person is in charge. So there's a whole bureaucracy, 
that can run regardless of who the emperor is. Um, there's a tax system, there's a set of legal processes, there's you know a way of administering the army, there's a way of distributing resources. And that entire system just exists. Uh, and an emperor can do a lot of damage to that system, but it will actually take them a very long time to do that uh, because the system is designed to persist even if the emperor isn't there. You know, even if he dies and someone replaces him. So the civil wars in the empire are much more frequent than the civil wars in the Republic, but constitutionally they're much less damaging uh, because the system is resilient to, I mean, becomes resilient to um, imperial regime change. So I think that the, the difference is that emperors fighting each other in civil conflicts in say the fourth century AD, it's about who's emperor. It's not about what our constitutional structure is going to be like. And they don't really change the constitutional structure very much. Um, there are a few, few different examples of people who do that, but it takes them decades to change it. Um, in the Republic, those civil wars are very much about this system isn't working for me anymore. Uh, and I need to create something new. And that means not just I'm going to be in charge instead of this other person, but we're going to do something completely different. Um, and so those civil wars have a much greater consequence than, um, you know, than a civil war where everybody kind of agrees, okay, well, someone new might be in charge, but like, you're still going to pay taxes in this way. And, you know, your province is still going to be administered in this way. And um, legal disputes are going to be settled in this way. And you go before this person to, you know, to argue a court case. Um, those things are much less disruptive unless you are unfortunately in the way of an army and you get kind of, caught somehow <laughs> um, and they are collateral damage yeah i mean we have this we have accounts of people we have so much source material from say the 350s um we have accounts of people who they put it you know there's a civil war going on and a guy who's likely to lose marches through their town and they put the guy up in their house and then they they panic because they know this guy's probably going to lose and they worry, well, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to look like a supporter of this guy. Yeah. But like, what option did I have? You know, he's here with 40,000 troops and he walks through my town and he walks across my farm and he has to stay in my house. Like, what am I going to do? Say no. <laughs> um, so in those cases, you get individuals who kind of worry about their position. In that particular case, really nothing happened to the guy, you know, yeah. you just... But he worried, for sure. He was very concerned that someone might do something to him because he's seen as not just passively going about his business, but actively supporting this other person. Seeing the patterns of the past, what are your predictions for the future? It doesn't have to be in the US, but anywhere else. Yeah, I, I think that we're going through a period of really profound change. Um, in a lot of different ways. You know, I, I think that um, religiously, um, especially in Western Europe, North America, and places like Australia, um, there is a, a move away from the religious traditions that have been associated with um, the rules of those societies for a very long time. Um, that I think is destabilizing. I think the way we live is also destabilizing from the way our societies expect us to live. Um, I think in a lot of the world, the move to very rapidly developing megacities 
um, is providing a lot of challenges where the social structures that support people throughout their lives are coming apart. Um, and then that's manifesting politically uh, in you know lots of different ways in lots of different places. Um, remember, I just was was looking at uh, you know some of the growth of cities in places like Nigeria and Pakistan, um, where you know Karachi was I think a hundred years ago a relatively small place, a few tens of thousands of people, and now there's what twenty million or so people there. Um, when a when a city grows that quickly it changes the experience of the people living in that country. Um, it changes the experience, it changes the social structure, it changes the rules of um, interacting, it changes the rules of marriage and child rearing. It changes all kinds of things. Um, and a political system tends to lag uh, those kinds of changes. So, um, you know, if you have a mega city in a place like like Pakistan or, or Iran or India or Nigeria, where the population is young, but the ruling administration is old, you have a lag where the policies that the people in that city need are not going to be conceived by the people who are running that society because they don't live in that world. That world didn't exist when they were young. So they can't understand that the desires and challenges of people living in a city that didn't exist in that way in a society that didn't exist in that way. Um, and so that's a real challenge, I think, everywhere in the world, because um, leadership is always a generation or two behind the people who actually are living that revolution, the people who need to make their life in that new context. Um, and that's a problem in you know North America and Europe, but it's also a problem around the rest of the world too because those societies are in some ways even more dynamic than um, North America and, and Europe. Um, and I think everywhere in the world, um, what Rome shows is these changes uh, need to be acknowledged by the people running our country. Um, the country needs to take policy steps to try to address the needs of the young people living in the country of the present, not the country of the past. Um, and everybody collectively needs to imagine what these changes might do to create the country of the future. Uh, and that is a real challenge. Societies don't do a very good job of imagining the future. Yeah. Old rulers don't do a very good job of imagining the conditions that young people are living through. Um, and they do a very poor job of communicating with young people and creating policy solutions that young people actually want. Um, but that's kind of the world we're in right now. Um, we, we need having an 80 year old running the United States is not the best thing for the United States right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's true in a lot of the world where you have septuagenarians and octogenarians and, you know, in some cases, you know, even people in their 90s running countries like this, it, they don't understand, they don't live in um, the cities that they govern, they don't live in the world that their people live in. And that means their policies cannot actually address those challenges, because they have no idea what those challenges are. So being the devil's advocate in this, I would say, they have more experience, they have, they've seen things happen they've seen the changes, the fluctuations, so they're able to predict. Wouldn't that be the case for having older leader leadership? 
So one of the things um, that I found really fascinating in, so I, my final pagan, I wrote a book called The Final Pagan Generation. That's a generational history that looks at people born in the three tens as they live in this society that evolves. One of the things that I realized when I started writing about them when they're old is they are living in a world that first of all, they don't understand. But second of all, they actually don't enter much of the space of that world because it's mm -hmm. not theirs. Um, so if you think about it, if you're 80 years old, you don't go into a grade school, you don't go into a high school, you, you, you probably haven't been in one for decades, except maybe you know, to see your grandkid perform in a play or something. Um, you, you never, in some cases, like, never interact with online apps, you never maybe have, um, like, been to where most of the people in a city live. Um, you never have been to like a dance club that anyone who's young has been to. You don't know what their social life is like. You don't know what their desires are like. You don't know what challenges they have raising children because you're not doing those things. Um, it became very clear to me that uh, like when this generation is in their 70s and 80s and you know the 380s and 390s, they don't go into most of much of their city. They don't visit the spaces where much of the people live. They don't talk to young people in a context where young people are going to be open about what their desires are. Um, and there's a lot of the city that they actually, you know, can't go into because it's not appropriate for them to be there. Uh, in the same way that like a young child can only go to certain parts of a public space. Um, the same is true of old people. There's just spaces where it would be weird for them to be, or they would have no desire to be, or they might not even be welcome. Um, and so there's a lot about that world they don't understand because they don't live in it. They don't even really walk through it. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we miss, right? They do have a lot of experience about, say, how to run a tax system because mm -hmm. the tax system has been there for a very long time. And so it changes very slowly. So their institutional knowledge of institutional things is very, very important. But their knowledge of how the world works for the younger people living in it is not current. Um, and not only is it not current, they actually struggle to even have the kind of access that would allow them to, to make it up to date. Uh, and so I think that's the danger, is if you live in a society that is very institutionalized, that kind of um, knowledge is very beneficial. But if you live in a dynamic society that is you know, very young and a there's a lot of change and evolution going on, that distance is really a problem uh, because there's just a lack of comprehension hmm. that I think is totally understandable and not a sign of them being corrupt or, or indifferent even. Um, but just, it just is. How, what would you recommend then? How would we make it, make sure that like each generation is being heard by the leaders of that time? Yeah, that's a real challenge. Um, and I, I think that every society struggles with that. Um, I think you do see bursts where a younger generation takes over. Uh, and does a lot of things very quickly to try to change the things around them. Um, I think that's probably going to be, well, that's going to be a real risk. 
you know, people in charge need to listen. Um, they need to be willing to step aside. Um, they need to understand when uh, the next generation has enough experience to manage the institutions they inherit and also implement their vision for what the future should, should hold. Um, it's really important and really difficult to manage that transition between an older generation that understands the structures of a society and a younger generation that wants to maintain the structures that work but fix the things that don't. Um, both groups take on a lot of risk when that happens. And both groups need to kind of trust the intentions of each other. Um, in the US, where we have a lot of very old politicians right now, I don't think mm -hmm. that trust is really there. Uh, and I, I hope that there is a, a sufficient handoff. But, um, you know, as someone who belongs to Gen X, you know, in the US, our generation was too small, and we never got a chance. So mm -hmm. our generation got skipped. You know, you have baby boomers in their 70s and 80s who are handing off to millennials in their 30s and 40s. And people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, we got we got skipped. Um, and mm -hmm. so whatever we have to offer, we didn't get to offer. You know? Yeah. But how, what would you recommend to someone? Okay, there's a changing of the guard, uh, but then there, there's a lack of trust as well. So how would one build that trust? So like if I am from a younger generation, for example, we learn from history. What books would you recommend? How would you tell them to like, you know, prepare themselves? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I think that what's really important is for each place to think about the terms that are appropriate to that culture and that background um, and understand how to rely on the structures of the past, be they institutional or religious or political, um, to build some of that trust you know, with, with a sort of long-term, multi-generational sense of how things ought to work. And if the younger generation and the older generation can agree on a kind of basic set of principles that are consistent with how that country or that city or that group has always behaved, um, that builds a lot of trust that the transition will at least be governed by a, a set of boundaries that everyone agrees, you know, again, are lawful and just to borrow the, the sort of Roman concepts. Hmm. Um, I think that that goes a long way. Um, but I think, you know, in, in, in the US, that's maybe looking at things like uh, the um, Federalist Papers or some of the documents written by our founding fathers. If you're talking about, you know, a religious group, like the Catholic Church, say, you know, then you, you look at kind of a theological approach, or you look at a kind of canon law approach or, or something, you know, where everybody agrees on the baselines. And then you're kind of working on how within these institutional guardrails change is going to occur. Um, but I think it has to be something that the older generation and the younger generation agrees has authority to govern kind of basic rules for how a community functions. Uh, and I think as long as that's there, you can build trust because everybody understands change is going to happen, but they also understand what the limits to that change are likely to be. 
right now we live in uh, a society where we can't be on the same page with anything <laughs> so how does one find that common ground um i so i think that's a really fair question <laughs> uh i so i think that um in the united states one of the things that we could use to find a common ground if we're talking about politics um is constitutional text, but I think in some ways those things have been politicized too, uh, where, you know, the meaning of these things have become almost so, um, well, I guess, politicized that it's very difficult to agree on anything about what they mean. That's a real challenge. Um, and I think that's one of the big destabilizing things in the U.S. in particular. Um, there's such disagreement about what these basic foundations are that it's it's sometimes quite difficult to find a common foundation um but then i think you move outside of the thought leaders and you move outside of the partisans and you see there's actually quite a bit of consensus about some basic ideas uh and it might be good to to try to change the conversation from the sort of partisan arguments uh, and focus instead on the, the basic consensus that most Americans have about the way that things should work. Um, how you do that, I think, is a real challenge because most of the people who would change that conversation are the partisans who are invested in not changing that conversation. Hmm. Uh, but you know, I think that's what would have to happen. Um, and I think in other societies, there are other foundational, other societies, other communities, other groups, there are other foundational uh, things that could also work in that way, but you have to, in a sense, remove the partisanship and remove the politicization that's already there and get new voices to speak towards consensus. Um, but how you do that in a society where people are angry, well, that's the real challenge I think all of us are facing really everywhere in the world right now. Or be like, G uh, be like Caesar, uh, try to sacrifice yourself for the better good and maybe society will function better. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are wonderfully powerful leaders um, who did that. I mean, Mandela is, in a sense, I think one of the greatest heroes in history because he provides a model for how to do that, right? I mean, he's, he's a figure who could have done really anything he wanted in South Africa. Uh, and what he chose to do was to move that society forward towards reconciliation and do it in a way that created a political system that turned power over. He was not an authoritarian. His term ended. He stepped down. He lived the rest of his life as an elder statesman. Um, that's somebody who really thought about what would make his society better, what would prevent mm -hmm. his society from descending into the kind of calamity that, you know, look at look just across the border in Zimbabwe, right? I mean, that could have happened, but much worse. And what Mandela did was create a way to move forward. Um, and he didn't do it in a self-interested way. He did it in the interest of everybody, people he agreed with, people he disagreed with, people who supported him, people who he fought against, people who imprisoned him, right? I mean, this is, that's a real hero. Um, I think that's one of the, he is one of the greatest people, um, certainly in recent history, because of how he understood the necessity of his job and what he was willing to do over the course of a very, very long time to do it right. Um, it's possible, but you know, Mandela is rare, very, very rare. Yeah. There are not many <laughs> okay. people in history like that. 
Um, and, you know, and I think there are models that we can look to, but I don't know that we can expect that every country in the world is ever going to be lucky enough to get a Mandela. True. Of all your books, which one would you highly recommend? It's like picking your favorite child of all your books. And um, why? I, so I think if you're interested in politics, uh, Mortal Republic is the, the book to look at uh, because that's really a discussion of, of the end of the Roman Republic. If you're interested in the kinds of questions of generations and, and change um, and the challenge of understanding a world that's passing you by, the final pagan generation, um, is really, a, it's a very personal book because what inspired that was the realization, like we just said, that my generation will not make an impact. You know, we, we will watch the world pass us by. We made some good music mm -hmm. and that was wonderful. Um, but, you know, that's what we did. And uh, <laughs> so I think that, that that's a different kind of approach. But um, I think the book I'm working on now uh, is a book that, you know, it's an optimistic book um, that looks at the way that Rome continued to evolve and incorporate new people and create an evolving society that was dynamic and took advantage of the talents of, of the best people that it could find to run this society on behalf of its citizens. So that that's, um, if Mortal Republic is a pessimistic book uh, about, you know, how a political system declines, and falls and collapses into authoritarianism. Um, this will, I hope, be a optimistic book about how a society can continue to reinvent itself to take advantage of the best among it. Um, so yeah, that, those would be the, uh, the ones I would point to. And if you really are interested in um, rhetoric that allows people to take advantage of uh, citizens who feel uncomfortable about change, the eternal decline and fall of Rome looks at how that's done over 2200 years from the second century BC until, you know, yesterday, more or less. <laughs> uh, where can people find your work? Uh, and also, when does this book get published, the one that you're working on? Uh, so the one that I'm working on now will probably appear in 2024. So um, it's a very long book because it's all of Roman history. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the other books are available on Amazon. Um, mm. I think Amazon everywhere. Uh, mm. And then um, you can also find them through basic books. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel where I just have a few uh, just kind of lectures about Roman history. That's called the eternal decline and fall of Rome. So people can check that out if they're interested. Are you on social media as well? Uh, just the YouTube channel. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you so much for being with me. Sure, this was wonderful. Thank you so much.